This is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Jabbar. Britain's highest ranking soldier in Afghanistan tells us the view from the top. Violence statistics are down 8%. That is the first reversal uh, of violence statistics probably in this campaign. Major General Mungo Melvin talks about the best way to form strategy and the next round of army cuts could see some cap badges disappear. But does it really matter? Next week, Britain's top general in Afghanistan, Lieutenant General James Bucknell, will hand over his role as second in command of ISAF. Before leaving the post, he gave an exclusive interview with our BFBS reporter Jeff Mead, in which he describes a remarkable reduction in violence. More on that later, but in the studio joining me now is BFBS's defence analyst Christopher Lee. Hi, Christopher. Hello. Uh, he's had some positive things to say, which we'll hear in a minute, about the situation in Helmand province. Uh, what's your assessment at the moment? Yeah, um, the general's right. It, there has been a visible shift um, in the way that the uh, forces, the combined forces, have been able to control uh, the security aspect of it. A big shift is partly responsible because the the Americans have been putting in drones and taking out Taliban, for example, on the Afghan border with Ziristan, etc. The second part of this has been the night raids of knocking over houses, dragging people out, suspects, taking them off to detention centres. Now, yesterday, in uh, in the great gathering of the elders, President, uh, 2,000 of them, uh, President Karzai said, listen, we understand that all these people, like the Americans, are going to be leaving. We've got to be able to control it the way they have. We're not sure yet whether we can actually do that. Now, the test for General Bucknell's hypothesis is whether the the Afghans themselves can maintain that level of authority and therefore the stability. Well, let's go to Jeff Mead now, who is in our studio in Camp Bastion. Jeff, tell us a bit more about what Lieutenant General James Bucknell had to say. He was very positive, very upbeat. I suppose you'd expect that. He's, after all, only a few days away from ending a 15-month tour. He's not going to want to finish that by saying things went terribly and I haven't done a very good job. But I think some of the statistics he gave, which you'll hear in a moment, are very interesting and really do underline the point that progress is being made. I think we can believe him when he says that. Um, he's criticised the military in the past for over-promising and under-delivering. So I asked him if he thought coalition forces had been premature in claiming successes in the past. You're absolutely right. We have had too many false dawns in this campaign. But uh, uh, the fact of the matter is, is that the surge, uh, the American, principally the American surge, is working. Um, violence statistics are down 8% uh, this year. Now, that may not seem a lot, but we were expecting uh, violence to have increased by between 17 and 30%, largely because of the increase in boots on the ground. That is the first reversal uh, of violence statistics probably in this campaign. In the southwest, violence is down about 30%. Uh, Marja, which in 2009 was described as the bleeding ulcer of this campaign, uh, violence is down about 80 or 90%. So I think you know, we said it would take time to get the surge in. Uh, we said it would take time for the surge to have effect and even longer for us to be able to demonstrate it. Well, we've now got the statistics uh, that I think that prove that. And more than that, I think that um, uh, we're seeing evidence that the insurgents have been uh, unable really to develop any momentum in their fighting season this year. 
Uh, it's not for their want of trying. They've uh, tried to bring in out-of-area fighters into Helmand. The Haqqani network has tried to come into Kandahar, but each time they've been unable to do that. So I think um, uh, your point is a very good one. Uh, we need to be ab there's no complacency. Uh, we mustn't overplay the situation. But I think the fact is that the, the, the insurgents' momentum has been reversed. Well, that does all sound very good news, Jeff. Um, other than the boots on the ground that he mentioned, what else did he say about why the levels of violence have decreased? Well, I think some of the things he, he itemised there, but also from speaking to him and others here, it is a combination of factors, certainly the attrition of the Taliban, uh, the limiting of their room to manoeuvre, uh, successes by special forces, better surveillance, the maturing of the Afghan units, and more trust in ISAF and the uh, Afghan forces by communities in places like Helmand. But I, I did pull it to him, I did press him on whether there was a single factor that he thought had led to the reduction in insurgent activity. I think uh, boots on the ground, um, I think for the first time in this campaign we have had the resources to match the strategy and I was last here in 2006. Uh, there's not much difference with our strategy, we just happen now to have uh, the boots on the ground to match it. And very important component of that uh, is uh, the Afghan National Security Forces, uh, who, as the indigenous force, are growing in capability, and that's hugely important. But the other thing I would say is that um, we have learned a lot uh, as an army and as a group of armies uh, over this campaign, as, you know, as would be absolutely right. But I think if you look at Task Force Helmand now, uh, the way it is operating, the way it is conducting its business is really quite different uh, from the early days, and that has had a big impact. And what do you have to say about drawdown? I think he indicated that it, it, what we can all guess that it's going to be a difficult, complex procedure and there is potential tension between the military and the politicians. Um, he stressed, as other senior commanders have done, the need to finish the job, that transition to Afghan authority and ultimately withdrawal of foreign uh, combat troops has to be conditions-based. But he was more positive about the gradual reduction in planned British forces, which he said was being comparatively well handled. We need to finish the job. Uh, we need to make sure we do this properly. We have got to make sure that uh, when we said transition was going to be conditions-based, we mean it. Uh, so uh, the rate of our drawdown is obviously an important part of that. But I would say that uh, the, the, the British government... Um, by setting uh, a, a 500 drawdown between now and the end of 2012 uh, has been really responsible and that has helped us hugely to plan ahead to retain the right force densities in central Helmand which is a critical part of this campaign. I think part of the problem is there is a concern that the US reduction, as he mentioned there, 33,000 troops uh, already are underway and will complete over the next uh, 11 months, is not really fully synchronised uh, with, with ISAF allies. Um, but he, and he said it would be tight, but he emphasised that the fighting forces would be concentrated in places like Central Helmand, Kandahar and Kabul, uh, where the risk of failure was too important to be jeopardised by an early withdrawal. And Jeff, he's moving on to new things, isn't he? What does he say about his time there from a personal point of view? Well, like all people, and he's been here for over a year, he's been marked by uh, this place. He said it was an extraordinary country. Uh, it had noble people. And he, he also took time out, of course, to praise the character and professionalism of British forces. He's going on to take over command of, of ARC, so it'll be Gloucestershire instead of Helmand, uh, where he'll run the Allied Rapid Reaction Corps. But I think he's done a good job here and probably is going to be a senior officer, a three-star general to watch in the future. And just anecdotally, do you get the impression that he's right to sound so upbeat? 
I think so. I mean, it would be great hostage to fortune. Um, uh, all, all this, he said on the record, the statistics he gave us, I think, you know, it would be very, very uh, rash of him to make promises and uh, give undertakings and paint a picture of success uh, where none really existed. And certainly that's the experience of those of us who come here fairly regularly, is that security stability too early to talk about it being entrenched but it certainly seems to be starting to take root all right jeff mead and cam bastian thank you sit rep with still to come why america is going to station thousands of marines at a base in australia and we take a look at britain's 20 worst military disasters pfbs sit rep you do the fighting I'll do the talking, were Prime Minister David Cameron's famous words back in June at the height of the Libya campaign. The quote was seized on by the press to demonstrate what they considered a low point in the relationship between politicians and the military. Earlier, I spoke to Major General Mungo Melvin, who last night gave a wide-ranging lecture at the Royal United Services Institute about strategy. I asked him about how that sometimes tricky relationship affects how strategy is formed. I think we shouldn't dwell too much on, on, that, on that particular soundbite. I think uh, politicians and senior military people uh, have a, a, a very you know, complex relationship, a professional relationship. And I think between the fighting and the thinking issue, which I think has been grossly simplified, um, the politicians and the military and supported by senior officials need to have a detailed discussion, debate, uh, looking through all the issues in some detail. I made the point there are no shortcuts to strategizing. There's got to be good thinking in between. And I, that's the main was the main thrust of my talk, the, the requirement for good strategic thinking and to be applied. Uh, and I think, uh, I think the, hi the recent history would demonstrate that when that's been done, a good relationship between senior military figures, senior uh, uh, politicians, then the relationship works well. We were hearing earlier in the programme from Lieutenant General James Bucknell on the progress made in Afghanistan. How do you think the military strategy has changed in the, generally in the past 10 years since British troops have been fighting in Afghanistan? Well, I think we've got to understand the, the, the sort of political context of it all. Um, and our strategy has been perforce been an incremental one. Uh, we are a, a junior partner to a senior alliance. Um, there's been a very complex uh, political construct, Afghanistan internally, Pakistan as well. And I, I think one of the points I made is we have to make strategy as we must, not strategy as we would like. So there's been inevitable... Uh, change of our strategy. What I would say now is the strategy we've got now uh, seems to be, as uh, many people have observed quite rightly, uh, producing um, uh, the results. Uh, it will take time and patience. There are no shortcuts to strategizing. There's no shortcuts to Afghanistan. And the, with the political and the military leadership that we have, it will take time. We should, we should be patient uh, for those results. And we've still got two or three years of hard campaigning ahead of us. Uh, and before we you know, hand over fully trained forces to the Afghanistan uh, government. And then they, they, that will be for them to carry on. We have a new Defence Secretary, Philip Hammond, only a few weeks into the job. How do you maintain a clear and, and constant strategy when the politicians keep changing? They may have varying levels of experience with the military. Well, that's why we have uh, professional civil servants policy in the policy staffs, you know, professional uh, senior serving military people, 
and it's been a tradition in, in, in this country that the, uh, the civil service and the military together within the Ministry of Defence and, and civil servants and other departments, they provide the continuity. Um, they are respondent to political direction, uh, but they are there to advise. Uh, they give continuity of advice. They are. Uh, they have. I think uh, collective wisdom. Um, of course, are hard choices to make, but ultimately they must respond agilely to political direction. So there's an interplay between um, the continuity and and the new. And I think uh, the new Secretary of State will be well supported uh, by his senior military advisors and by senior officials who've gone through some very difficult, uh, tough choices, both in resources recently and some very tough choices over, uh, over strategy. And, and provided we continue to educate and train as best we can future generations, not only this Secretary of State, but future Secretary of States will be well supported. You, you mentioned the tough choices and the difficult times that we have been through. How well is the relationship working between the military and the government at the moment and the politicians? Well, I think if you strip away one or two, um, you know, headlines about you know thinking and fighting and all the rest of it, I think uh, at a at a top level and at a working level, um, there are uh, basic, fundamentally good relations uh, based on on professional expertise and trust, and and I think it would be very divisive to try and uh, pick that apart. As in any tactical action, whether on a ship or a military unit, an air force unit, or even in the Ministry of Defence. Um, this is not just about the, the ideas and the intellect. It's all about, about how the people work together. Um, Defence, the military, is a big team effort. Uh, and therefore, it behoves us uh, to work together to best effect. But we have to be honest in the advice we give. We have to be give, There are hard choices. And team effort does not mean um, uh, commonality always of the views expressed. And I've argued long and hard that good strategy comes out of hard and robust and honest debate. Major General Mungo Melvin speaking to me earlier. Uh, Christopher, some interesting thoughts there on how strategy is developed. Uh, while we're on that subject, it looks like the Americans have been planning a new strategy of their own in the Pacific. Tell us more about that. Um, there's a Pacific conference going on at the moment. Um, uh, the President of the United States has spent 27 hours in Australia. It was all planned. The Americans are going to develop what has been a landing stage base just north of Darwin. You can't get much north of Darwin, actually, without falling in the sea, but that's where it is. Um, and putting in two, two and a half thousand U.S. Marines there. In other words, and building a big base. It's going to be much bigger than that. The Australians have agreed to it. Fundamentally, what this is, the Americans are moving far more of their strategy and their strategic thinking, the sort of thing um, that General Mungo was talking about there, uh, to the Far East. Because? China. They look at China and they say the Chinese are building up huge forces. And the American strategic thinking is this. If you don't put a deterrence in there, then you're far more likely to go to war. And their new jumping off base is going to be northern Australia, northwestern, uh, north, yeah, northeastern Australia. Mm. Just as, for example, at the moment, if you went to Qatar or somewhere like that, you'd find, or Bahrain, you'd find big American uh, uh, military contingents. They're now shifting it further uh, to, the, to the south and east, because don't forget they're in Okinawa, they're in Japan itself, they're in North Korea, uh, South Korea rather, um, and so they've got a big contingency. And this is going to change the way we start thinking once the Americans sort of emphasize that presence. No, no signs from Britain Beijing. On, 
No signs from Britain on that front, though, at the moment, are there? Well, we've always been around there, and deployments, for example, when, if you know, the Navy ever gets itself together again, uh, the, 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 the uh, global deployment has always included lots of stops around there. Um, and so, yeah, I think so. There's lots of exercises, and don't think, you know, don't forget one of the big allies, uh, military allies in any operation, the Australians, as far as the British are concerned, and have been for 100 years. Indeed. Um, Syria in the news a lot this week. Just bring us up to date on that. Well, basically what's happened is the Arab League, and these are the countries that represent, or, or the, the organisation represents most, uh, have said to Syria, right, you're out. We are going to actually emphasise uh, more sanctions unless you stop, take the tanks off the streets, basically, in two, three days. So by Saturday, Sunday, uh, Assad said, well, you know, perhaps I will do that. Problem is very, very simple. The people, Alawites, who are controlling the army and the country have got too much to lose. And it's very unlikely that they can do this. The Alawites will branch, if you like, at the Shears. The other side of it is Turkey, NATO ally, British ally, are really getting grumpy about this. They've got a long border with Indeed. Syria. Syria long seems border. to be losing all its friends, doesn't it? It has no friends left. And that is the problem. So the other thing that's now happening, there is the, is, there is the irregular army. 15,000 of them, though, deserters from the, from the army of Syria. And they are starting to do the fighting. The next thing they're expecting, people will start putting weapons. In civil their, war we're talking about, potentially. Not only just civil war, um, but involving everybody in the region, because everybody has to take a part. Uh, not forgetting, of course, um, Iran this week. Um, just You've got some interesting information about that, haven't you, development there? Yeah, the guy that was killed last week, um, who was a major general, um, was, was, was running a new system for a new missile that would carry nuclear weapons. We often talk about is Iran developing weapons, but you've got to have the delivery system. And this is development of something called the Shahab 3 and he was the guy that was zapped. And the word is in Washington, Mossad. Mm, and that's, that's what they're doing, knocking off the key guys, uh, plus putting the, 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 the worms into the computer system. That may be the alternative to bombing. All right, Christopher, stay with us. Frequently on this programme, we've heard how the biggest and hardest cuts to the army are still to come. So what does this mean for regiments and cap badges? Ten years ago we saw the formation of the so-called super regiments and cap badges were saved but only just. Another round of cuts could mean names like the Black Watch and the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders disappear forever. But does it really matter? These soldiers in Camp Bastion think it does. Well their cap badges are slightly different for the rest of the corps and ours has got a belt run it and tells it means everybody inside that belt's family. So everybody that wears this cat badge to us is like a brother or a sister. It makes you totally different to everybody else. Uh, basically, your cat badge is the history you honour and what makes every unit different in the army. Rather than having numbers like the American army, we've got cat badges. History is a good thing to have. Um, in modern society where things changing is very um, flexible and everybody's got their own opinions on everything and everybody seems to think their own rights. I think that the fact that the army's traditionally that... Uh, as a focus on, on the unit rather than the individual makes it stronger and better. Well, obviously I chose it, so it means quite a bit for me. I had friends and things joined the, um, that specific regiment. I had a friend injured out, yeah, so that's that's why I played 
came out, yeah. What's the loss? Well, I don't think it's a ma major loss because all the history and everything still travels with the with the batteries and things because all that's happening at the moment, the batteries are moving to different regiments and being part of the regiments, not a complete disbandment of the regiment. So um, the history will still be with the battery. Julian Farrance joins us now from the National Army Museum in London. Uh, Julian, thanks for your time today and welcome to SITREP. Um, obviously some very strong views held there. How important do you think cat badges are to the army? I think they're extremely important. Um, obviously, the, the guys are expressing the views about their current service, the fact that the, the cat badge bonds them all together. Um, and it's even more than that, isn't it? Because as, as some of them were saying, you've got an enormous tradition and an enormous history of your, your regiment the, the people that have gone before you, the deeds that they have done, uh, and the cat badge is the, is the embodiment of that, the thing that, that binds everybody together. So I think it would be a, a terrible loss if they were gone completely. Um, obviously, um, throughout the history of the British Army, the, the Army continually changes, and, and cat badges, along with everything else, move around as, as regiments are amalgamated or new regiments are formed. But I think the, the, the idea of the cat badge and the loyalty to it is, is of extreme importance to soldiers. Is there, though, um, still enough room for all the cap badges that exist with the restructuring of the army? Well, the army is a fluid thing, and it always has been. It's something that expands and contracts throughout its history. So I think it's important to, to realise that, that these kind of changes have happened before. And obviously, because army people are, tend to be a bit traditional, then you'll you get a, an initial outcry if things aren't staying exactly as they always have. But because the army is a fluid thing and because it's something that has to be adaptable, um, it, these changes are to be expected. I don't think that the eradication of the cat badge would be in any way a good thing, personally. Having said that, you know, you've seen famous regiments uh, long disappeared, Marlborough's, Wellington's and Monty's. Um, there are other ways to keep those, those cat badges alive without the actual cat badge, aren't there? I suppose so. I mean, if you look at institutions like our own here at the National Army Museum, we keep the stories of soldiers. That's our function. So those stories will always be preserved. But cat badges can be a living thing. Um, very old cat badges can continually come forward again. Um, the, the light infantry bugles, those kind of things, will continually come forward. Um, I was amazed to discover recently, of my own personal ignorance, that the, the Berkshire Yeomanry badge, the white horse, is still in, in use today. That these, these badges that have been around for hundreds of of years continually come back into service. Christopher Lee, do you think cap badges matter? Um, I think what we're talking here about is that David Cameron recognises how sensitive they are. Mm. And he's telling the army, OK, you've got to make further cuts, but beware of the cap badges. Hasn't he said that they should be left alone? That won't well, be he has, but you can't badges. just leave them alone. I mean, I know, from, from, I mean, from my family, I mean, they're uh, a whole bunch of horse gunners and, 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 and the Black Watch. And as my, uh, as my grandfather used to say to me, oh, the Black Watch, he said, very, very good, um, but of course we can't bet people to recruit into it. I think the important thing is, it's not as if we're going to have a blank badge uh, things like saddle belts will remain, even the colours of woolly pollies, they remain. It's very important for pulling guys together. Yeah, I mean, but when you consider young people joining the services, joining the army, they learn about the traditions. And as long as those traditions, those badges aren't removed in some way, and you learn about what you're joining, and you're an amalgam, you may be a battalion, you may be in just a company of what was once your, 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 your uh, Highlanders or whatever, I think that probably remains important. But as you were saying earlier, you know, Montgomery, he, I think he was, he was in the Warwicks. 
Where are the Warwicks uh, uh, today, the Bucks and Anglians who disappeared, and yet they'll be parading on Sunday at their own Remembrance Day parade? It exists in some form. Julian, um, I mean, obviously loyalty is a very important uh, characteristic within the armed forces. What role do cap badges have in engendering it and keeping it? Can't that just be done without the cap badges or do they I, I don't think it can I mean obviously loyalty on its on its most important form is going to be the loyalty to the soldiers that you're serving with and that's something that the army has recognized uh, for hundreds of years that the, the the small units will bond together because of the of the service that they see together but I do think that the cap badge is the next step up from that the fact that it's the it's the loyalty to your battalion to your regiment uh, and it's as, as I say it's it's not just a historical thing it's, it's not just linking back to the deeds that have gone in the past although those are vitally important I believe obviously as a museum historian but it is also a way of keeping those those young uh, soldiers bonded together now in, in their own identity and I do think that that, that sort of thing is, is vitally important for soldiers Alright, Julian Farrance from the National Army Museum thanks for your time today We've heard a lot about the challenges facing today's armed forces, but what can we learn from looking at history and our past mistakes? A book is just out called Britain's 20 Worst Military Disasters, and it catalogues just that. Its author is John Withington, and he joins us now. Uh, John, good to speak to you today. Why focus on disaster rather than victory? Well, I'm a disaster historian. I've written three books on the history of disasters, and so um, I'm afraid I operate more in the territory of disaster than triumph. So schadenfreude is your thing? Uh, I don't know if I get much joy out of it, but um, I certainly find it very interesting, and it was a really interesting book to write. I think, you know, partly because um, I... I came upon a number of disasters that are, are not very well known. But perhaps not surprisingly, we know a lot about the victories like Agincourt and Crecy and El Alamein, don't we? But rather less about the disasters. Yeah, your research goes right from the Roman conquest through to the fall of Singapore. Of all 20 disasters you've written about, um, the Battle of Castillon, way back in 1453 in France, made a big, big impact. Why was that? Well, that was the battle that effectively lost... England the Hundred Years' War. So uh, the war had been raging for a mere 116 years when the Battle of Castillon happened. And uh, it was the last throw of the dice, really. England sent across its best military commander, a man named John Talbot, the Earl of Shrewsbury. The French called him the English Achilles. And the story goes that he was such a fearsome commander that French mothers would frighten naughty children by telling them that Talbot was coming. Hmm. Uh, but on this occasion, um, what seems to have happened is Talbot was a, a daring commander, some would say rash. Uh, he was asked to go to the relief of the town of Castillon. At first, he decided not to do that, but the townspeople were so eloquent that he decided to go along. And he came upon a French force just outside the town, routed them, uh, and then he was going to prepare an attack on the main French encampment. Now, the main French encampment uh, boasted a man called Monsieur Bureau, who was a great expert in artillery, perhaps the world's greatest expert in artillery at that time. And he had fortified the camp very, very well. Talbot, nonetheless, got a report from the townspeople that clouds of dust were seen from the direction of the camp, and he thought that a hasty retreat was happening. So he thought, well, why not pitch in and turn a hasty retreat into a rout? Uh, so he did that. He 
he started an attack, but I think almost immediately uh, he must have realised that he'd miscalculated. Uh, his men were subjected to fearsome fire. It wasn't dust at all, was it? It, it wasn't. It, well, it was dust, actually, but it was just the camp followers leaving. They'd very sensibly decided to get out of the way, but the army was had stayed behind. And so... Um, the English were heavily defeated and Talbot was killed. Uh, Christopher, do you think there's a modern-day equivalent to the kind of military disasters that, that have been written about in this book? Yeah, it's mostly political, isn't it? There. I mean, there's some extent here. I mean, I, John, I just take sort of just a thought on Castillon. The British are on their way out anyway, weren't they? I mean, it had, had been ever since Orléans, what, quarter of a century earlier. And also the Burgundians had deserted the British, hadn't they? Well, I think we have to call them the English. Um, I think, the, I, the English. I think Scots yes. and, Scots, the Scots listeners might be, um, might be a bit but, upset because they weren't it, involved in this disaster. Yeah. No, no, certainly Orléans was a, was a severe um, blow. The, and... Um, but, but the, you know, the fortunes of war had ebbed uh, back and forth quite a lot. And interestingly enough, quite a lot of people in England did not believe Castillon was going to be the I, end I, of the I, story. What, what's interesting um, is the, the part that luck plays, the misinterpretation, mis- underestimating your enemy. Christopher, how much do you think that kind of decides a battle or a conflict? That kind oh, of it, it does. It, it, I mean, the, the most famous one, the last successful invasion of, of Britain, for example, or of England, was the Battle of Hastings. Uh, and uh, poor old Harold, after sort of marching all the way down from Stamford Bridge, um, um, he uh, he was in a terrible state. He miscalculated what the Normans were doing. Um, but luck, yes, the Normans wouldn't have come if the weather hadn't changed because they were stuck on the other side of the Channel. The wind changed, the weather changed. They came, and, you know, a whole new branch of uh, of English history. And John, uh, John, briefly, what can we learn? from the mistakes of history? Well, somebody said, didn't they, that the only thing we ever learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. But hmm. now, just one thought, the, the Afghan war is one of the wars that I write, write about, and some of the parallels there are quite interesting. You know, we went into Afghanistan because we were worried about the activities of foreigners there. In those days, it was the Russians. Uh, there was even a dodgy dossier and um, we wanted a bit of regime change and we managed to depose the man who was in charge and put our own man in but uh, sadly that didn't prevent perhaps one of the biggest military disasters in the history of the British Army with 16,000 people leaving um, and only one person getting through. And John, there we must leave it. Thank you very much for your time today, John Withington. That's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all our guests and, of course, Christopher Lee. In the next few weeks, we're going to be discussing the Army's new multi-terrain pattern uniform, and we'd like to hear your views. Is it scruffy and uncomfortable, or are you happy with it? Please let us know on Twitter. You can tweet us at bfbssitrep, or send us an email. The address is sitrep at bfbs.com. We're back at the same time next week, so from me, Kate Sherbo, thanks for listening and bye-bye for now.